Father, as we open up your word, I pray that your spirit would give us insight into this text and these several texts that we're going to be looking at. I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me. I pray that we would have a a biblical understanding of your church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning we're going to be talking about what's so important about the church. What's so important about the church? I remember uh, growing up as a preacher's kid, and uh, I have memories of my dad uh, when I was a child doing uh, certain things. And I remember vacation Bible school, and if I remember correctly, First Baptist Church, Lexington, Mississippi. And, uh, and he would get up there, and it's sort of comforting because I would see him sometimes as, uh, in, in awkward moments with fellow kids that I would be in the crowd with. And I remember one time he was trying to give a big illustration about something, and uh, it was really profound because I can't remember what it was about. But uh, he asked the kids, he says, what is, a, uh, what is a seminary? And this little smart aleck kid over here next to him, he raised his hand, and he was like, a place where they bury people. And my dad was like, close, <laughs> close, <laughs> that's not too far off. Uh, and then there was another kid that was in this group. We had a bunch of knuckleheads at First Baptist Church, Lexington. And, 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 and he said, uh, who is Philip? And this one kid, he, he looked dead serious. He raised his hand and he said, a screwdriver. He's like, no, no, that's not Philip. But sometimes the way we are perceiving things can't be further from the truth. And I really want you to think of something this morning. If your child or if your friend came up to you today, called you up and said, tell me what a church is. What is a church? What would you say? How would you respond? Because I think that one of the things that happens is the older I've gotten, you know, we're all in process. And uh, I think sometimes people are surprised that uh, as a minister, I'm learning all the time. And a lot of times the things that you may think that I've known for years, I learned that week. I'm learning with you. And, and, but sometimes when you ask people, what is a church, uh, they think of the church only as community. Only. They think of the church as fellowship. They think of the church as coffee with a Christian. They think of the church as what time it starts. They go, oh, we meet at 10.15. That's our church. They think about maybe like a glorified concept of Kiwanis. We do get things for the community. We meet and we do those things. They, they think of the church in more of a when we do it, we go, we listen, we sing, we see friends, we go to lunch. And that's the concept that they have of the church. And I pray today that as we look at this, that you would see. Some people think of the church only as the building, only as the building. And they think of the church as 918 South Broad Street in the old senior center where my great-grandson had his Boy Scout party or great-grandmother danced there when she was 12, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and today what I want us to do is I want us to step back because I think one thing that we have to struggle against and fight against, all of us, is making sure we have a proper understanding of ecclesiology. Don't let the word scare you. 
It's a word that means the study of the church. What is the church? Because a lot of people don't value the church. They could take it or leave it. They could listen to a podcast of a sermon and think, well, I got my church in. They could read their Bible on a deer stand and think that I did as much as what I would have done at church. But I think a lot of that comes from often a lack of proper teaching on the church and people are left with maybe filling in the blanks in ways that are unbiblical. So today, my hope is, is that as a result of looking at this, that we would all be amazed and encouraged at what Christ has done in understanding the church, I pray, a little better this morning. We're going to look at four keys about the church today. I, you know, when we went through the pandemic, and I know that that was a the intensity of those 18 months to two years uh, was palpable, wasn't it? And, and I think one of the things that happened as, as we were going through it, one of the goals and one of the things that I really felt like God put in on my heart was to have a deeper dive into what the church is. A lot of people uh, never came back from the pandemic because they like doing church at home. But the question is, is online church church? That's a question we got to ask. Because a, a view of that ecclesiology may lend yourself to say yes, but it may make you go, no, not at all. And so we need to look at these things. And, and, and one of the, the deep dives that, that really God put on my heart as we were doing our Sunday night class, as we were uh, studying the fundamentals of the faith, was what is ecclesiology? What does this mean? And going back through years of things that I've, I've been taught years ago, the resources that God has really used in my life in this study, and I want to give them to you because like, if you were looking at those resources this morning, you could see where many of these things I'm going to say came directly from what I learned from these godly men. One was uh, a book by Tony Morita, Love the Church. Um, a uh, book by Colin Hansen, Why the Body of Christ is Essential. Um, uh, the Th Systematic Theology, Wayne Grudem. Uh, Biblical Doctrine, John MacArthur. I could go on and on of just some sources that have really fundamentals of the faith, MacArthur, that were really helpful to me. And I pray today would help us. The first key that we're going to look at this morning, and again, this is not the normal style of teaching that we do here at Riverside but we're in the book of Hebrews more than a year, almost a year and a half. And so sometimes, like when we're in a break between book studies, I feel like it's helpful at times to look at something like this to just get a little bit better footing as we move forward. Number one, first key, the head of the church. The head of the church. We read in the scripture that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. But before we get into... Christ is the head of the church. I wanted to read to you a definition I came across about the church. Used in a specific New Testament sense, the church of God refers to the community of those who have been called out by God from their slavery to sin through faith in Jesus Christ. Not just a, uh, a service we attend, not just a place where we go, but a literal called-out community. A community called out by God from sin and darkness into his family. 
a brand new perspective of thinking of the church potentially for you. When we think about Christ as the head of the church, listen to uh, a few of these passages. The first one's found in Ephesians 1, 22. In Ephesians 1, 22, it says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. You know, when you're growing up, uh, depending on your pattern and, and your teaching, uh, a lot of my friends thought that my dad was the head of the church. He was the pastor. You know, your dad runs things here. You know, it's, it's amazing. You know, you get all the, uh, the church jokes. Uh, uh, you see someone on Saturday night, and I said, I guess you're working tomorrow. You know, this is your one day of the week you work. You know, that kind of stuff. And, uh, and a lot of those kind of uh, think, thinkings of uh, pastors. And growing up, I remember a lot of my friends were like, yeah, I mean, your dad runs this place. You know, your dad does this or your dad does that. And we can sometimes, even though we know that's ridiculous, we can start to think that the pastor is the key guy in the church. But we got to understand something. This isn't the pastor's church. This is Jesus' church. And I'll tell you, that may sound as simple as anything you've ever heard me say, but that is a foreign concept to many people that attend church. They don't consider that. Jesus Christ is head of the church. When we think about the head of a body, I was listening to someone years ago, and they were offering some of the types of things that we can draw from that. The head gives direction to the body. The head gives life to the body. The head is glorified on the body. That The recognition goes to the, the head. And when we think about Christ as the head of the church, we're thinking about him as the leader him as the one who instituted the church. Him as the one who called the church. Him who gives life to the church. All power comes from Him. It says that in Ephesians 1.22, you could go to Ephesians 4.15, and it says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. And this is going to be interesting because the metaphor of the church being the body of Christ begins to challenge and stretch some of the ways that we incorrectly think of the church. Because we begin to go, wait a minute, this is bigger than a service. This is bigger than a time. This is bigger than an address. This is bigger than just simply getting with friends. This is bigger than this, 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 this. This is God's design. This is God's grace at work. This is God's new creation community. This is a brand new setup, a brand new world, a brand new environment that we now participate in because of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You could look at other passages, but today we got a lot of ground to cover. And if I don't move, we're going to be here for a while. Uh, but he's the head of the church, the head of the church. I, I was, uh, he brings power, leadership, love. He's the savior. So many different themes connected to the terminology that's used when he is referred to as the head. I got so excited, uh, reviewing some theology, a text that I was looking at and, and from, a, um, from MacArthur, 
on Matthew 16, 18. And I want to look at that with you because I want you to see something here. This is incredible. Matthew 16, 18. We're going to move through this. So I'm not expositing Matthew 16, 18. I'm going to spend three minutes on it. I want you to notice something though. Read the verse with me. In Matthew 16, verse 18, it says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The one who's the head of the church, Jesus Christ, gives us understanding of the church here in many ways. And and one of the things that, that you see here is that there's a permanent foundation here. A lot of people have speculated, and not everyone agrees, brothers, dear brothers in Christ that love theology and love the Word of God often see this a little different. But, but, but here, it appears that what he's doing is, I believe, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Well, earlier we heard Charlie read the confession of Peter that spoke about who Christ was. And I believe that, that the foundation he's speaking about here is the testimony that Peter gives of who Jesus is. And, and I think you can see that, and I got so excited seeing this illustrated in, in 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says something really, really fascinating. It, it says here, you know, we see that the preaching of Christ and the testimony of Christ was the foundation. Look at verse 10 of chapter 3, or, or chapter 2 of, or chapter 3, I'm sorry, of Corinthians. He says, 1 Corinthians 3.10, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. But then the next verse, listen to what it says. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the foundation. And the only thing Peter, the only thing Paul could contribute to that as a vessel was simply preaching Christ, was proclaiming who he was as the cornerstone, proclaiming who he was as the head of the body. It is a permanent foundation. But not only is it a permanent foundation that you see in verse 18 of Matthew 16, you see some other exciting things. You see the personal involvement of Christ with his church. Notice what verse 18 says. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Christ is personally involved in this. Um, There's not only a a personal involvement, there's a positive expectation. (laughs) Listen to what he says. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. It will happen. You hear sometimes like Barna studies or you hear some type of church um, people and they're like, oh, the church is diminishing here. I'll tell you, I heard a guy uh, walk the other day. We're getting close to SEC football and I won't tell you which team, but uh, this person said, my team is predicted to win 10 games. I didn't agree with the prediction, but I won't tell you the team was. 
but they said, my team's going to win 10 games because so-and-so said this, and I heard him talking to someone else. That is a positive expectation that his team's going to be successful this year. But how many times do you have positive expectations as sport fans, and it just doesn't pan out? That's the story of my sports life, right? But let me tell you something. When it comes to the church of Jesus Christ, the success of the church is not dependent on us. We are called to be faithful. We are called to be laborers. We are called to be stewards. But Jesus has put his authority on this. And he has guaranteed not only his personal involvement, but he has given us every indication that what he has established will do what he calls it to do. Isn't that comforting? I feel like a lot of times one of the biggest struggles we have in the way we look at the world is that Jesus is basically just hoping and that we can hold on and provide and do what he needs us to do. But friend, that doesn't give me any comfort at all because if he's not the sovereign creator and sustainer, we're up a creek. We are done. But Jesus is the one who builds not only his involvement in this, his, the expectation he has in this, but then he gives us the sense of the advance in this. On this rock, I will Build, build. He's going to build it. it but not only that, it, it, it's a church that he owns that he's purchased. Look at the next phrase. I will build my church. It's his. He purchased the church with his blood, his own blood. But not only that, we see now that there's a priority that he has for a community that he's called out, a people-centered priority. I will build my church. And then again, the promise of success. There's an expectation of a positive expectation, but look at the promise of success. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's good news, isn't it? Praise God that he is faithful to his promise. I was looking at some notes from from Grudem, and he said, Consequently, the church is not the physical building where Christians meet, nor is it a religious institution, an ethical organization, or a socio-political association. Rather, the church is the assembly of the redeemed, those who have been called by God the Father to salvation as a gift to his Son. It is the corporate gathering of those who have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Christ so that they are citizens of heaven and not of this world. I love this. He, he goes on and he says, Christ's promise guarantees that the universal body of believers under his headship will have an enduring testimony that cannot be destroyed by this world, Satan, or even death, no matter how legalistic or apostate its outward adherence may be, and no matter how decadent or hostile the rest of the world may become, Christ has promised that he will build his church Though their outward circumstances may seem hopeless or impossible from a human perspective, God's people belong to a cause that cannot fail. As the architect, builder, owner, and Lord of his church, Christ comforts his followers with the truth that they are his personal possession, the objects of his unfailing love and divine care. So we see the head of the church is Jesus. The second key I want you to see this morning. The second key is the leaders of the church. The leaders of the church. 
Christ is the head. If we don't understand that, the leaders of the church are going to take an unhealthy role in the way that they operate. They'll see themselves as the king. They'll see themselves as the president, so to speak. They'll see themselves operating, whether they say it or not, as the head. But the leaders of the church, if you go to Ephesians chapter 4, we see some offices mentioned. And if you want to quickly turn over to Ephesians 4, look with me at verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. We're going to look at that passage in verse 12 and 13 a little bit more on the next point. But what are the four offices here that he mentions? He mentions apostles. He mentions prophets. He mentions evangelists. He actually mentions five. I think he's mentioning four, though, and I'll explain. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Now, so people would say often, oh, okay, well, then today... I would, it would be normal and necessary for, to, for me to go to a church where not only is there Pastor John, but there's Apostle Steve. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this not in any sense trying to be cruel or mean, but if, if run from that kind of church. Run. You say, why? I'll tell you why. Go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Ephesians 2.20 gives us a framework to how to understand the ministry of the apostles and the prophets. The apostles and the prophets, I believe with all my heart, one, because the apostles were notified in the scripture. They were, they were, they were shown to be men that had experienced a literal encounter with the risen Christ. There was criteria for what they did. It's interesting because in verse 20 of Ephesians chapter 2, it says, built on the foundation of the what? Apostles and the prophets. Any, any houses going up around you where you live? Have you seen any framing going on lately? You ever, uh, it gets pretty exciting driving by a house, you know, for about 10 months, and you sort of look at it every time you drive by and make comments on whether you like it or not. And, uh, but you start to see them lay out the land, don't you? You start to see these survey sticks, and you start to see a dozer out there doing some work. And then after a while, you start to see that footer go in. And you see a concrete truck, and they're pouring that footer out there. And then they got concrete block coming off of the footer. Now, what happens? Once they go from the footer, what's next? We're going to wood, right? We're getting ready to start framing. When they go to framing, do they say, wait a minute, we need to go back and do the foundation again? No. The foundation exists to be the support, to be the foundation of the house. Now, what's interesting about this is I really believe when we study Scripture that the offices that we see here, Christ made pivotal. The apostles and the prophets served a place and a priority in the life of the New Testament church. And once God had sovereignly worked through their work, their time was not needed anymore. And I'll tell you one thing that's interesting. A lot of times today, you'll see people talk about modern prophets. 
But remember something, and I want you to, challenge, to be challenged with this. In the Old Testament, what was the basis of whether or not a man was a prophet, even a, the woman prophetesses? What was the basis of whether or not they were legitimate? This is the audience participation part. What do you think? What's the, uh, what was the basis of whether or not they were accurate? Their accuracy. I just gave you the answer. Their accuracy. And what happened to them when they were wrong? They were killed. And, you know, those that prescribe to the modern prophecy movement do not go by that standard. They don't go by that standard. And the argument that they'll give is that the New Testament prophet is not in the same line with the Old Testament prophet. And and I would challenge you, and they use some very strange line of thinking. They go to Agabus in the book of Acts, and I believe there's nothing that Agabus says that did not come true the way he stated that it would come true. And so what I would challenge you to think of here is that the apostles and the prophets play an incredibly important role, but I believe the scripture suggests their role is done. But what do we have left? We have the evangelists. We have the shepherds and the teachers. Now, this gets exciting. We're all called to share the faith, but isn't it remarkable as we think about how God has gifted some people to share the gospel? You ever notice that? You ever notice the unique role that evangelists will play in the church? And, and I'm speaking about those who faithfully proclaim the word of God, and God just, because of his sovereign grace, he works upon their ministries in ways that people come to know Christ. It's, 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 it's a gift. It's, it's, it's a calling that God has put on certain individuals. And I believe their ministry remains to this day. He, he's given the apostles and the prophets as the foundation, but then you see these evangelists, and then you see shepherds and teachers. And what it appears to be here, and a lot of people see it this way, is that he's speaking here about the shepherd teacher. He's speaking about the role, and he's now beginning to show one of the tasks and one of the qualifications, key qualifications for the elders. Now, that brings us to elders. I want us to look at this. We see the apostles and the prophets. They were used by God mightily in establishing the foundation God would use evangelists and still uses evangelists till this day. But then we have the shepherds and the teachers. Now, go with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. It's interesting because we see in Philippians chapter 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers, and the deacons. That's interesting. Two different offices are mentioned there. He mentions, depending on the translation you're looking at, with the elders and the deacons, the overseers, and the deacons. Who are these people? Well, it's interesting because I know we're moving here this morning, but what I believe is happening is the shepherds and the teachers, if you go to 1 Peter 5, 2, you don't have to turn there. Peter uses three terms to describe one office. He uses the word for shepherd. He uses the word that you would recognize in the Greek if you heard it. If you heard the word episkopos, it would sound like a denomination of the Episcopal, right? You'd hear that word. If you heard the word presbyteros, you would think, oh, that sounds like Presbyterian. And these three words, the word for shepherd, the word for bishop, the word for elder, are all used to describe the same office 
of men who lead the church as shepherds. This is so much fun to look at in God's word because you see in the scripture that the great shepherd of the sheep, according to Hebrews 13, 20, is the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. But what has Jesus done because he has a heart for his church? Through the power and the wisdom of God, there have been men equipped to be under shepherds. And 1 Peter 5, 2 says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And you think about sheep. You've probably seen that little video that it's always on social media where the the shepherd or the kid in some country where there's a lot of sheep, he helps out that sheep that's stuck in between the rocks. You seen that? And he gets the sheep out, pulls it out. And now the, the, the sheep is free and he runs and what does he do? He jumps and he falls right back in the hole again. And, 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 and we are looked at in, in the scripture, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And God has called for there to be faithful men who shepherd the sheep of his flock. And the way that they shepherd, the way that they guard, the way that they graze, the way that they guide the sheep is through preaching and proclaiming of the word of God. So we see here that there's the head of the church, but there's leaders in the church, and those leaders are, in our time, the elders and the deacons. Well, what's the difference? Well, we look in the scripture, and we see that elders have a description. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 7, we see a list of characteristics of what an elder is to be. We see that same list repeated in a different way in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. We then get into 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we see these men called the deacons. A lot of people say, where did the deacons first come up? There's speculation it may not be the first group of deacons, but do you remember the story in Acts chapter 6 when the church basically, the Hellenistic Jews thought that their widows were being neglected? And they came to the apostles. And what did the apostles do? They called out. They got a group of men that were known for their their life and their witness. And what did those guys do? They served the apostles. And the apostles focused on the priority of what God had appointed them to do. I'll read it to you real fast. In Acts chapter 6, it says... In verse 1, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And listen to what he says. They says, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But then it says, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of of the word. So what do you see here? You see elders following in that type of focus are to focus on prayer and the teaching of the word and deacons. The only difference in their qualities and their characteristics is that the elders have a teaching gift. 
the deacons come alongside and say, how can we serve the church in order that the elders not get preoccupied and take their eye off of what they're supposed to do? Does that make sense? So we see the elders and the deacons, and we see that they're called to work alongside. So we see the head of the church is Jesus. We see the leaders of the church are these elders and these deacons that God has called there to be in the body. But thirdly, we see the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church was really a review of last week. What do we see? The priority of the church, and I didn't mention this last time because it, 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 I pray is uh, apparent no matter where we are, but the priority of God's people is to worship God. He's the one we're here to worship. Have you ever noticed that uh, regardless of what your past church experience is, things get crazy in church settings when church becomes about me and not about God. You know, and a lot of times, I've been guilty in the past. You may be guilty in the past. We can all relate to past church experiences, but I can remember when I was in Albuquerque, a lot of times, you know, people will say, I didn't like church. That's not what I like. And it's sort of like, well, that's good because it really doesn't, it's not about you. That's not the goal. The goal is not to please you. The goal is to please who? God. And so worship is when the church turns away from pragmatism. And what's that? What can we do to be relative? What can we do to reach people? What can we do to meet needs? What can we do here? And a lot of times that's what the church does. But the purpose of the church is not to focus on the needs of the people. The purpose of the church is to worship God. It's almost as if it's like God is saying, if you'll trust me that I can sustain, I can build, I can keep, I can add, I can, I can do all these things, will you do it my way and trust me with the results? And what is, what is the church to do in worshiping God there to preach the word? You remember when Jesus was ministering to Simon Peter after he rose from the dead in John 21 and he called him to feed a sheep? feed a sheep. And one of the prior, primary purposes of the leadership of a church is to preach the word of God. And what did we see last week? That we may present everyone mature in Christ. The other passage that would be a great parallel of that is Ephesians 4, where we just read. And did you catch the second part? He says, these, these shepherds and teachers equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. There's that word mature. It's similar to what Paul uses in Colossians. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we see here that there, there's a priority. You know, to God it's worship. To believers in the body it's to nurture, to grow, and how does that translate to a lost world? We see the heart of God in Matthew 28 calling us to do what? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And so now we see the extension of presenting people complete in Christ, of, of, of nurturing them in the word, is that the outflow of that will be prayerfully evident where? In evangelism and evangelism, and sharing the gospel with the people around us, and taking the gospel to where it's never been preached. So we see all these things start to function. But fourthly and finally, 
We see the head of the church, Jesus Christ. We see the leaders of the church, under shepherds. We see the elders, and we see the deacons. We see the purpose of the church, worship God, to nurture the flock, to the world evangelism and missions. But now we see the members of the church, the members of the church. Now, this is where I pray this gets you as excited as it got me. How are we members of the church? You know, is it a, what does that look like? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 says this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Now listen to this. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. You've been in a church lately that says you need to be spirit baptized? I would agree. But it takes place at salvation, not subsequent to salvation. If you're a believer, I've got good news for you today. You've been baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. It's not an experience that you need to seek after. It's not an experience that takes place multiple weeks after you're saved. It takes place when you came into the family of God simultaneously with your conversion in a unique, mysterious way where you were united with Christ. You're in him, and he is in you, and you've received every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. This teaching in our area, I believe, has led many people to think they're secondary Christians seeking to find an experience so they can go into the room with everybody else. But when we see the gospel, we say, wait a minute. The members of his church aren't secondary people. They're called into the family through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit now indwells them. And what do we see? Members of the body. Now, this gets exciting. There's two types of members in the body of Christ. There's universal members, and there's local members. And we've got to be careful that we understand both. What does it mean to be a universal member of the body of Christ? It means, as one Jonathan Lehman says, to become a Christian is to become a member of the universal church whereby God raises us up with Christ and seats us in the heavenly places. Now, this is where, now hang in there with me. Because theologians, I mean, and again, I, I, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm always the one that, and when I was in class growing up, I was the guy who needed the teacher to explain it one more time, every time. And when I was in algebra and he'd erase the board, I knew I was sunk. Because I couldn't figure it out. And I'd check out, I can't figure it out, I can't keep up with you. So look, by the grace of God, if I can understand this, through the Holy Spirit, we all can, all right? Listen to this. Theologians have referred to this like this. Two kinds of assemblies. Now, hear me out. They refer to the universal church as one in heaven. Now, wait a minute. Does Does that strike you interesting? Because where are you right now? Here on earth. But the universal church is labeled as one in heaven. The local church is labeled as one, many on 
earth. Now, why, 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 why? Now, listen to this. I love it. It's the idea that the saints of old, the theologians of old, they understood that Paul said in Ephesians that we are literally seated in the heavenly places in Christ. Do you remember the passage that we looked at in Hebrews? And I don't think that I fully got it when we were going through this. It's amazing what you learn. Do you remember Hebrews 12, 23, where he says, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven? Do you realize that if you're a member of the universal church, your name is enrolled in heaven? And that you are seated in the heavenly places in Christ? And that's why theologians have said, look, look, understand, you may be living down here, but your position is secure in Christ Jesus in the heavenlies. Don't you love that? And what does that do? It unites us with those dear, precious loved ones who love Jesus Christ and are now with him. We are united by one Savior. We are in one family. All of the apostles, all of those who put their hope in Messiah in the Old Testament, all those who stood and trusted in Christ in the New Testament, the martyrs of the first three centuries, we are united with all of the people of God because of what? The blood of Jesus Christ. The church universal in heaven. But then there's many churches on earth. I'll give you an example of the universal church. What we just read in Matthew 16, 18. And I tell you, you are Peter on this rock. I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Whether it's a believer in South Korea, North Korea, China, whether it's another denomination and they believe in Jesus Christ in Scottsboro, it's Atlanta, you go anywhere around the globe, we are a family, and we are not only united with believers across the globe, we're united with believers who are now with Christ because we are members of the universal church. Amen? That'll preach, won't it? <laughs> I'm telling you, this is amazing. But look, but then Jesus, two chapters later, in Matthew 18, says something different. Speaking of church discipline, he says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Wait a minute, what's he talking about? Is he talking about tell it to the universal church? Now that's going to be hard. If there's a church discipline situation at Riverside, are we supposed to tell it to the universal church? Of course not. Where are we to tell it? To the local assembly. There's a universal church in heaven there's multiple churches on earth. And this is what we begin to see here. We begin to see that not only is it important and primary to be a part of the universal church, but it's significant and primary to be a part of a local church. And I want to challenge you here. And again, God's word's the authority, not me. But there's several passages that point to the importance of membership. I've had many people over the years say, ah, membership's not biblical. You can't show me anywhere in the Bible where I need to join a church. Well, I'm going to politely, kindly give you a little pushback if you're thinking that. And I'd love to talk to you about it with grace and, and with humility. But look, how do we obey our leaders and submit to them 
if we're not a part of a church? How do we do church discipline if there's no formal membership? Another question here is, is how do we join the church? In Acts 5.13, it says, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. It's very interesting because when you look at the epistles, you see the names of the people associated often with the churches. You see it. Pentecost and around that time, actual numbers, numbers associated with the church. And what seems to be the actual situation is that not only were people required to submit to leaders, but leaders were accountable for people. Now, I don't know about you, but it's hard to keep up with six kids in my house. But it'd be really hard if I didn't know who my kids were, right? And as a church leader, how do you give an account to God for people that you don't even know whether or not you're accountable for? It's one thing to think about because I want you to be encouraged by this. I heard this and it thrilled my heart. The local church is where we see, hear, and literally rub shoulders with the universal church. No, not all of it, but an expression of it. It is a visible, earthly outpost of the heavenly assembly. It is a time machine which has come from the future, offering a preview of this end time assembly. Wow, I love this because now it's going to be the sprint to the finish here. What are some things the church's membership is involved in now? We are now, you ever heard people say, you know, and we say it all in laughing and and in goodwill, But, you know, we got our people, right? You know, those are my people. Those are your people. In the church, now we realize these are our people. Why? We're a called-out community by God. And now we've been brought into family. I I can't remember. Recently, I was talking to a brother, sister, in another place. and And they looked at me, and I looked at them, and I said, Do you realize I've only known you for an hour, and you're like family to me? I said, how is that possible apart from Christ? How is that possible? And, and that person looked at me and said, I feel it. I have a, as close, or another person looked at me one time and said, I have a closer affinity to you than my physical brother. Why is that? Because these are the people of God he's brought together. They're our community. You see, the word church, ecclesia, it's the idea of a gathering a gathering. You see, you can't gather with online church. You can't, what's, the, what's that phrase now, the, the metaverse or whatever? You can't gather in there, even if you got a cool-looking little dude on there. You can't gather. You, we need to see each other, be able to touch each other, be able to hug each other, be able to be accountable to each other, be able to serve one another, be able to encourage and, and lift up when we're hurting. I say this, if I'm excited, I promise you I'm not mad. I'm so excited about this because I want you to see that this is a beautiful picture of what Jesus has given us through his church. We are community. We're the true community. We gather. We gather and think about it. We're not as pagans. We don't gather together and, and beg God to come meet with us. No, we're his called people. We're not inviting him. He's invited us. Aren't you thankful? 
Sometimes, and I know the heart of what they're saying, but sometimes the way we on the stage talk about God meeting with us is actually more pagan than it is real. No, we're the family of God. He purchased us. We're not asking him if he's interested in coming over here today. We're his people. We gather. And we gather, and what did we learn in Hebrews? We learned in Hebrews that we gather not just to check off attendance boxes, but we are needed with one another. Why? Because let us hold fast. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see today drawing near, we worship together. We worship together. We serve. And how do we serve? through the spiritual gifts God has given us. There's no second-class people in the kingdom of God. You may be here today thinking, I don't have a teaching gift. I don't have this. Well, I want to encourage you. You've been purchased by the blood of Christ, friend, if you've believed on Jesus Christ. You are in the family. Not only do you, are you in the family, you've received the secrets of the family. Not only that, but you're in union with Christ. You've received every spiritual blessing, and God has uniquely spiritually gifted you, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 4 suggests. But now, as part of the family, we partake and we receive. How do we partake? We partake of the Lord's Supper. We read about that in 1 Corinthians 11. But how do we receive? Well, we receive in a lot of ways, but think about this. We receive... Others that come into our body through the waters of baptism. The waters of baptism now become not just a way for an individual to express his faith and commitment. Now the waters of baptism become a way that the local church receives people into their midst. We are a part of a family, and the ordinances that Jesus has given have been a part of that family since it began. And we are not coming up with something in the year 2022. We stand on the shoulders of the apostles and we look to Jesus Christ, our head. And you know what? We, we receive what we, we share with an outside world. We have a message and a proclamation. We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into marvelous light. We discipline and restore. We don't discipline like, like, like parents in the world that may have a mean disposition to their kids. We've all seen it. We've all been in a fast food place and watched a parent scold their kid, and it was just harsh. And everybody's like, ah, I don't like watching that. No, in this family, we're called to discipline out of love because we care about one another. We care about the purity of the church. We care about the influence we have in the world. We care about what God cares about, but we seek to restore within that, like Matthew 18 and Galatians 6. We love one another. We're called to love one another. We know when the flesh, when we go after the flesh and when we see the flesh divide us, but we're called to love with the love that only Christ can enable. And this gives the ground for all the one another's in the body of Christ we're not to show favoritism. We're to love each other. We're to accept one another. And all of this, we, and, and we honor. We honor our leaders. We honor them because God has placed them 
in our lives. And, and in that sense, what do we learn about how we honor others in the body in a different context? We submit to one another, Ephesians 5 says. So all of this to say this morning, I pray that you're encouraged. If you're a part of the church, you're a part of something so much more than attending a service and evaluating a sermon. And this one went too long, so I'll just go ahead. The, uh, and it's more, I want you to see that, no, you have been invited into a community. And you can't function the way God intended apart from it. You can't. I heard one man say this, and, and consider it, okay? He says, consider what this means. If a person says he belongs to the church, but he has nothing to do with the church, one might rightly to wonder if he really does belong to the church, just as we would wonder about a person who claims to have faith but has no deeds. And again, it's not my place to judge. It's not my place to play that role. But I'm telling you, we're talking about an understanding that in the family of God, this is different than we often perceive it. So friend, today I want to close with this. We saw the, the church's head, the church's purpose, the church's leaders, the church's members. I want to read to you an old, old hymn that I read in the ending of one of these systematic theology overviews, and I knew I had to read it. The church is one foundation. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Elect from every nation, yet one or all the earth. Her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, and to one hope she presses. With every grace endued, mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore, till with the vision glorious her longing eyes are blessed, and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. Yet she on earth has union with God the three in one, and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. O happy ones and holy, Lord, give us grace that we, like them, the meek and lowly, on high may dwell with thee. Would you bow your head? God, I thank you for the miracle of your grace. God, I pray that you would do a work in this church body where we would be captivated by your love. That we wouldn't, we wouldn't go to church in some type of ritualistic emptiness. But God, we would see that we are a called community, called out of the world, and now called together to assemble. I pray, Lord, that you'd give us grace to walk in these things. And Lord, even as I pray it, your word promises you have given it. Grace upon grace in your son. We pray, oh Lord, that, that we would see a biblical view of this. God, I pray that in my own heart. I pray, Lord, that this would, that your truth would captivate me. 
captivate my brothers and sisters. Lord, I pray today if there's someone here that doesn't know you, I pray that they'd be so touched and so moved by the thought of being in a family like this. And I pray today they would see the goodness of the work of Jesus Christ who purchased the church with his own blood. And I pray today would be their day of salvation. I pray they would trust in you. They would believe on you. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you teach us about your church. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.